The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. This morning we will look at verses 8 through 11. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the glory, excuse me, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning in First Timothy chapter 1. It's our great privilege today to gather as we worship around the word of the Lord and then to gather around the Lord's table to share together in the Lord's Supper. It's always a joy to do that. It's one of the two ordinances instituted by the Lord that we affirm and practice as a regular part of our worship here at Grace on the Ashley, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We've got baptism coming up and the Lord's Supper today. And we gather around the Lord's table to remember the death of our Lord in our place, his death, his burial, his dying and shedding his blood to pay the penalty for our sin. Is standing in our place, enduring the wrath of God that we justly deserved, that we might have his righteousness and be saved, be redeemed. The Lord instituted that for us so that we would never forget it because he knows we're forgetful people and that life gets busy and things go on and days go by and weeks go by and months go by. And the next thing you know, it's been a very, very long time since we've remembered the Lord and we've remembered what he's done for us. And we've become complacent in our faith and in our love for him. And so we have the Lord's Supper. It's, it's for us and for that purpose. And so we get the joy of, of doing that together today. Uh, in case you're wondering, uh, if you're a regular part of our worship here at Grace on the Ashley, we've, we've sort of made a predictable schedule for the rest of the year for the Lord's Supper. And uh, we have... Scheduled this for the first Sunday every other month. So if you want to put that on your calendar, starting today, every other month, the first Sunday, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper together. If for you, uh, it's important and you'd like to prepare for that. And it is something that's important to prepare for. If you were to open your Bibles, and you don't have to right now, to First Corinthians chapter 11, we find Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. And he talks to them about the seriousness and the sort of the sacredness of gathering around the Lord's table and why it's an important part of worship and why it's something that ought not be profaned. In fact, he, he lays out some guidelines pretty clearly about how God's people like us ought to approach uh, worship in this way around the Lord's table. And he chastises that church in Corinth because they've begun to take the Lord's table casually and they've begun to take it without considering seriously the Lord and without considering seriously their own sin. And they've become complacent in the way that they worship the Lord around the Lord's table. It's just become sort of a a rote thing for them that is now lacking in meaning and seriousness and sacredness. And he says to them in in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that 
because you've profaned the Lord's table, uh, many, of, many of you are sick and some are asleep. That is to say, some are dead. So it's serious how the Lord takes the Lord's table. And this is something that is to be done by only those who have personally placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you are a believer by placing your faith in Jesus and what he's done on the cross for you, uh, then you are, are welcome to join us at the end of our uh, teaching time this morning when we share in the Lord's Supper together. But the Lord's Supper is an interesting sort of a sort of a, an, or, an ordinance for us to practice because, particularly this morning, as I think about the connections to the text that we have in front of us, because the Lord's Supper is really something that Jesus instituted in, in, by way of transforming an Old Testament ceremony. He took an Old Testament uh, ceremony that, that centered around the Passover feast of the Jewish faith in the Old Testament, and he transformed the elements, the, the bread and the wine, into a new meaning, but he maintained sort of the, the, uh, the ceremony, if you will. He just transformed it. But the, the Lord's Supper has deep roots in the Old Testament. And so when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 1, we find that the false teachers to whom Paul is warning Timothy that he needs to go in and correct, uh, we're going to find that among other things, we looked last week at some of the things that they've got dreadfully wrong, some of the characteristics that marked their lives that should have marked them out to anyone who was paying attention that they were not true teachers, but they were false teachers. Among all of those things, there's something else that they've gotten horribly, horribly wrong. It's not just their life, but it's their doctrine. They've gotten horribly wrong the place and use of the Old Testament in the life of a New Testament believer. They've gotten horribly wrong the purpose and the use of the Old Testament law in particular. And that seems to be sort of the genesis of their false teaching. And it's interesting because throughout the history of the church, there are false teachers who consistently make the same error, who consistently misunderstand the role of the Old Testament in the life of a New Testament believer, who consistently get wrong the use of the Old Testament law in a New Testament era. And there are even some teachers who normally get things right who seem to miss this piece. And so it's important for us this morning as we, as we look at the Word of God and we begin to think about the question of how does the Old Testament relate to the New? How does the law of the Old Testament have value and purpose in the life of a New Testament believer? How do we cut that piece of doctrine rightly as opposed to the false teachers that Timothy was dealing with who cut it wrong? And that's sort of the, the, the essence of the text in front of us. If you follow modern-day teachers that are popular in the U.S., you've probably heard of Andy Stanley. He is the son of famous pastor Charles Stanley. He's a pastor of a very, very large church in the uh, Atlanta, metro Atlanta area. And there's been no uh, shortage of debate over about the last three years uh, centering around the doctrine that Andy Stanley has been teaching, particularly in light of the Old Testament as it relates to the New he wrote a book called Irresistible, I think it came out last year in 2018, in which he sort of doubles down on some things that he had previously said about the Old Testament. And the great concern that Andy Stanley has that <clears throat> drives what he thinks and what he says about these things is that he feels that the Old Testament is a huge stumbling block to unbelievers in a modern era. 
He, he feels that when unbelievers look at the Old Testament and they see particularly Old Testament law, it's a turnoff to them and a shutoff to the gospel. And it becomes a barrier for their belief. And so he wants to correct that. And his method of correcting that is by essentially jettisoning the Old Testament. By arguing that as New Testament believers, really the Old Testament really doesn't matter. It really it doesn't matter whether you believe what the Old Testament has to say or not. And in particular, when it comes to the law of the Old Testament, he argues that the law has absolutely no bearing on the lives of anybody in a New Testament era. The law is irrelevant to modern-day Christians, is his argument. He even goes so far to say that the Ten Commandments have absolutely no moral bearing on a New Testament believer. He says, in fact, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. Much like the, the false teachers in First Timothy to which Paul is writing, he gets the Old Testament law wrong. He gets it wrong. His argument is that when Jesus came, he did away with all the Old Testament law. And so none of it has any value and any bearing. We have no, no reason to ever go back and revisit the law. We're free from it, he says. We're no longer under the law. And by that he means all of it. Well, in spite of the fact that Andy Stanley thinks the law is bad and needs to be jettisoned so that we can reach unbelievers today, Paul argues here in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that, in fact, the law is good. That it's not bad, it's, in fact, good. And that it's useful. But he makes a caveat. He says the law is good and it's useful, but it's only useful when it's used lawfully. Only useful when it's Used lawfully. He says we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So for, for us this morning, if we want to get this right, if we don't want to veer off into false doctrine like Andy Stanley has on this issue and like a, a myriad of other false teachers in our culture and throughout history have by getting this wrong, we need to take some time this morning and ask the question, what in the world is Paul talking about here when he talks about the law? And if he says that it's good, what is a good use of that? And in other words, what is it to use the law lawfully? In contrast to false teachers who use the law unlawfully. And all of that, if you'll trust me, is going to lead us to the Lord's table this morning. So let's begin. What is the law? We need to ask the question, what is the law? When Paul says that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, what is he talking about? We see this all throughout the New Testament. It speaks of the law. You heard in Galatians chapter 2 that John read an awful lot about the law. About the law, about the law, and what it can and what it cannot do. What is this law? I want to give you some simple, two simple definitions of the law. You can take whichever one you like. They're both true. They just sort of frame it in different ways. One definition says this, the law is simply the moral standards that God has set for human beings and their life on this earth. The moral standards God has set for human beings and their life on this earth. That is the rules that God has laid out for people. What is right and what is wrong? The do's and the don'ts. Here are the things that please me. Here are the things that displease me. Here are the things that honor me. Here are the things that dishonor me. This is the law. Another way of casting it is this. That the law is God's system of rules by which he shows and instructs in his will and administers the affairs of the world. The law is the, the system of rules by which he shows who he is, his holiness, and he instructs what his will is like. And how the world ought to operate in relationship to him. 
It's a reflection of his holiness and his moral virtue. That's what the law is. In a more general sense, we see the term law used often in the New Testament, and it can mean really all of the instructions God had for his people. So if you go back to the Old Testament, you see all the instructions that God lays out for his people, that's all encapsulated under the umbrella of law. Does that make sense? It's law. Just all of his instructions. Now, where false teachers get it wrong and where Andy Stanley gets it wrong is they miss that there are distinctions within the law. That there are categories within the law. There are different kinds of law. There are at least three categories, and the Reformers sort of laid this out for us pretty clearly. We could probably categorize it in different ways apart from this, but I think it's really one of the best and most helpful ways of laying out the distinctions. They talk about ceremonial law, that there's a a subset within the law that is ceremonial law. It refers to or it relates to the worship of Old Testament Israel. And if you go back to the Old Testament and you read the law, you'll find all sorts of ceremonial law, all sorts of instructions about what God's people in the Old Testament were to do when they gathered, where they were to gather, what the worship was to look like, what the place was supposed to be organized like, what sort of things were to be used in their worship, and in general, some of the things that were to happen within it. Also underneath that ceremonial law is a whole set of instructions about ceremonies and sacrificial laws. A part of Old Testament worship was people came to the temple or to the tabernacle. They came where God's people were gathered and they, they, they sacrificed animals. They killed animals. Blood flowed out of the temple as a part of their worship. And there's a whole world of law associated with how all that's supposed to go down. There's law about how the temple was supposed to be laid out. There's law related to how the tabernacle was to be constructed. There are dietary laws. There are laws about the roles of clergy, what the Levites were, and what they were supposed to do and not do, and so forth. And all of this sort of fits under the heading of ceremonial law. When Christ came, when Christ died, and when he was raised, and the temple veil was ripped in two, God exposed the falsehood of of Jewish worship at the time. And he set aside the ceremonial law. There was no need to gather according to these rules and to sacrifice animal because the Lamb of God, the final Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God, had shed his blood and there was no longer any need for any further sacrifice. His blood was sufficient to save all. And he ended the ceremonial law. But there's also the civil law, another sort of subset within the law. And that's... The law that relates to the nation of Israel. If you understand the Old Testament, you understand that the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was a theocracy. We don't live in a theocracy. Do you know what a theocracy is? I'm going to tell you if you don't, so I'm going to tell you right now. Here's what a theocracy is. It's a system of government in in which the church and the state are one and the same institution. And that's what Israel was. It was a, it was a, it was a nation that was led by a, a theocracy, a government church that altogether is one. So that is to say all of the, the law re- relating to worship, the ceremonial law, was also sort of connected to the civil law. A lot of the instructions we see really relate to how the nation is to operate as a nation. Sort of similar to the national law that we have in our country, although we're not a theocracy. We live in a culture where the church is one thing and the state is something altogether different. In Israel, in the Old Testament, they were one and the same. So within this big set of instructions that God has given in the Old Testament, there's civil law. How people are to act toward one another. What happens when people break the law? What are the punishments that are to be doled out? And so forth and so on. Underneath that are laws related to things like national celebrations and 
Even tithing sort of fits underneath that. In the Old Testament, tithing was instructed. If you were to give tithes, if you add up all the Old Testament tithes, if you were to give of their finances, it adds up to like 33% or 33 and a third percent. And a big chunk of that was, was a tithe that went to help the poor. It was a, a, a tithe that went to the national government that was doled out to people who were in need and so on and so forth. All of that's under the civil law. But there's a third subset, and this is the one to which we need to give attention. It's the one that the false teachers had missed and misunderstood, and it's the one that Andy Stanley and others like him miss. It's called the moral law of God. It's the moral law of God. It is the law that reflects the very nature of God himself. It is the law that defines what holiness means. The moral law. It defines what holiness means in the character of God, and it calls us to live in light of that. The Ten Commandments fit underneath this, the moral law of God. The Ten Commandments reflect who God is, His very nature. And His very nature is unchanging. So regardless of what happens at the coming of Christ and the move from the Old to the New Covenant, God never changes in His nature and in His essence. And He is always a reflection of His character the same. The holiness of God in the Old Testament is the same as the holiness of God in the New. And so when we look at the moral law of the Old Testament, we see the Ten Commandments, and then beyond that, a a, a further expansion of specifically how those laws play out in particular sort of circumstances. And God's moral law sort of unfolds. If we were to turn to the beginning of our Old Testament and start flipping our way across, we see how God unfolds his moral law sort of progressively from start to finish. We go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and God lays out his moral law for Adam and Eve, the first human beings. And it's quite simple the way he lays it out, isn't it? I mean, he doesn't give them a book that thick of laws. He just simply says a couple of things that they're to do, and one thing they're not to do. Do you recall those things? You're to... Multiply, that's one thing. Good law, right? Good law. It's true, it's good. Be fruitful and multiply. That's a good thing the Lord has commanded. He says, just don't eat of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You can have everything else. It was a reflection of God's moral law for them. Here are some things that you're to do, and here's something that you're not to do. His law was very simple. His law was very clear. And the consequences for disobedience to his law were specific and severe. If you disobey, you will surely die. I will kill you. I'll kill you. That's what will happen. Well, we know how that story unfolds. If we were to flip a little further over to Genesis chapter 26, you begin to to move into the narrative about Abraham, the father of of Old Testament Israel. And we see in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 26, he says, I'll multiply your offspring, this is God speaking to Abraham, as the stars of the heaven, and I'll give uh, you to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So it's clear from the Garden of Eden to chapter 26 that God has unfolded his expectation or his moral law more clearly and more specifically and in more varied ways to the time we get to Abraham because Abraham is called a man who obeys God, who obeys his laws, who obeys his commandments and his statutes. 
And so the law is, God has sort of progressively filled out his moral law for his people. But it's not yet written. It's not yet written until we get to Exodus chapter 20. Do you remember what happens in Exodus chapter 20? Abraham is off the scene. There's a new leader. What's his name? Old Mo, right? Moses. He's on the scene. And God calls Moses to bring his people around a mountain called Mount Sinai. And God says, Moses, you'll come up on the mountain and I'm going to come down and I'm going to meet you there. And that's what happens in Exodus 20 through 23. And God meets with Moses there and he has Moses write down his law. Moses, I want you to codify my law. I want you to put it in writing for my people. And he gives him the ten commandments to begin with. And as we trek through the rest of the Old Testament, we see the rest of God's moral law, sort of, excuse me, the Old Testament, begin to sort of flow out of that and progressively build on those ten. Moses comes down from the mountain and he shares with God's people all what the Lord has told him. And here's what happens in chapter 24, verse 3 of Exodus. Moses came down and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and they said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But they're going to find out in sort of vivid ways very quickly that they are not able to do what they said they would do. They are not able to keep God's moral law. The law is simply an outflow of the nature of God. It isn't new law. It's simply more detailed description of who God is and what he expects of us. But a question still remains by the time we get to the end of the Old Testament. God's law is fully sort of exposed in written form for God's people. But what they don't have is an example of somebody who could keep it perfectly. It's written down in words. They understand what God has said and what God expects. But they cannot envision what it looks like to perfectly obey the law of God. Because nobody in their experience, nobody that they know could ever do that. And so when... God himself comes in person, in the person of Jesus Christ. We see a full and final demonstration for God's people of his law. It's not just what God said and what God had them write down, but now they can see it in the person of Christ. They watch the man walk and talk and think, and they watch his attitudes and they hear his words and they see how he navigates a sinful world around them, and they see in living color what it looks like to be perfectly holy and to fully keep the law of God. There was no one like him. God wasn't just saying what his law was. He was showing them in the person of Jesus. A vivid, full-color display of what it looks like to obey God. That's what we have when we look to Jesus. A clear picture of the holiness of God in action. So the law is good because it expresses to us the holiness of God and what it means to honor Him with the way that we live. But Paul says it's only good when we use it lawfully. And it's clear that he's saying that in contrast to people who Timothy is having to deal with in the church of Ephesus who are using the law unlawfully. So what is it that they're doing that is an unlawful use of the law? They were using the law as a means of justification. 
They were saying to the people, here's what God demands of you morally in your life. And if you will do these things, you will gain right standing before God. It was a bald-faced lie that doesn't save anybody but condemns them. If you just do these things that God has said you should do, you'll be good with the Lord. You'll be justified in His sight. If you just keep the law, you can be saved. Now, we don't know the specific flavor of what they were teaching, but we know in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, he talks to these false teachers as people who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. So it has to do with ceremonial law. It has to do with genealogies we saw at the beginning of chapter 1. And later on, he talks about this abstaining from food and forbidding marriage and some of these other things, aberrant laws that were not actual laws, but they were now imposing on the people as a means to be justified before God. And so they were using the law in a way that it wasn't meant to be used. They were saying to the people, if you just keep the law, you can be saved. And if you just keep the law, not only can you gain right standing by God, but by keeping the law, you maintain right standing before God. They were using the law as a means of grace. And they were aiming it at believers in the church. And so they got the use of the law wrong, and they got the audience for the law wrong. And that's why Paul is livid. And this has been a problem throughout the history of the church. There always have been voices from within the church and in every false religion in the world around us that makes some sort of an argument that if you do some set of works, you'll be justified before God. That you can be saved if you want to be saved, if you feel like you need to be saved, that the way to do that is to go and do certain things. To do certain works. Jesus dealt with in Matthew chapter 23. With the Pharisees, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. There's all these little tiny spices. You get all these tithing laws right, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You ought to have done one without neglecting the other. You think that you're in right standing by, with God because you're keeping these little minute laws, but you've missed the fact that you are violating major laws at the same time. In Acts chapter 15, the early church, they gathered, and there was this big debate, what do we do with Gentiles? The Gentiles have to keep the Old Testament laws in order to be New Testament believers, and that's the argument that's going on at the Council of Jerusalem in chapter 15 of Acts, and they're they're contemplating this and dealing with this, and the conclusion is, no, they do not. And in Galatians chapter 2 that John read for us earlier, Paul writes, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The law cannot justify anybody. Keeping the law cannot save anybody. The law has absolutely no power to save anyone. There is no list of rules that you can go live by in your life and be saved and be right before God. There is no list. I don't care who puts out the list. I don't care where they find the list or how they define it. None of them will gain you right standing before God. Because the consistent message of the New Testament is that salvation comes by grace through faith apart from works. It is a gift from God, not something that we earn. Scripture couldn't be more clear about that. But yet it is the heart and really the genesis of nearly every false religion in the world. They define some system of works by which people can be justified before God. They define some sort of system of works by which people can maintain a good standing before God. And they impose it on people. 
You can look to modern Judaism. You can look to uh, the Mormon church, the Jehovah's Witness church. You can look to Islam. You can look to what Roman Catholicism has done from taking a salvation by grace and adding all sorts of religious works into it as a part of salvation. And it all comes back to this same error of adding some sort of human list of do's and don'ts as a part of being made right or maintaining right standing before God. And that's not a lawful use of the law. It's a perversion of it. Listen, the law can't save anybody. The only thing the law can do for you and me is condemn us. That is the only thing the law can do. The law condemns us. It curses us. It has no power to save us. The only power it has is to condemn us. Because as it exalts the holiness and righteousness of God, it shows us the gap between who he is and who we are. John MacArthur gives a really helpful list of of reasons why the law can't do anything but curse us. And I don't have time to go into these, but I'll just lay them out for you sort of quickly. He says the law requires behaviors opposite the desires of the heart. Our heart is naturally inclined to be selfish and prideful and to to be self-indulgent and deceitful. Those are our natural desires, but the law calls for us to be humble and to delight in being selfless and to love our neighbor and to delight in the truth. And that is not the natural inclination of anyone's heart. The law calls for things that are impossible. It calls for us to be perfectly holy as Christ is holy. And none of us can do that. It's physically impossible. But that's what the law demands. The law demands from a sinner absolute perfection of performance. That's what the law demands. It says, you must keep me fully and completely perfectly. See, that's what the Jews misunderstood. They thought that that it didn't work like that. They thought that if you just did enough of the laws, if you kept enough of them to sort of outweigh the bad things that you did, if you just kept more than you broke and the scales sort of outweighed in that direction, you were good to go. But that's not what the law calls for. The law systematically from back to front calls for perfection, perfect performance. The standard is be holy like I'm holy. The law can only condemn because it refuses to accept effort as a consolation. The law doesn't accept effort as a consolation. It doesn't say, well, hey, you, you missed the mark, but you gave it a good old try. Come on in. It's, you're good. It doesn't say, hey, you get an A for effort. We're going we're gonna to let you pass on this one. You blew it on a few things, but you tried hard. The law leaves no room for effort as a consolation. The law accepts no no limited payments. It accepts no limited payments. There's no penance that can be done to lessen our accountability. There's no sacrifices that we can make. There's nothing that we can do to even partially pay for our sins and our violations of the law. The law provides no strength to help us keep it. It doesn't. The law says here are the demands, but it does nothing to help us meet those demands. Nothing. The law listens to no repentance. When we violate the law, we can't cry out to the law and say, hey, I'm sorry, forgive me, because the law doesn't forgive. It offers no forgiveness. All the law can do is condemn us. That's all it can do. Because it shows us the perfect holiness of God and who he is. And in light of that, it shows us how utterly wretched we are. 
And the only result of that is condemnation. We have not met the law. We are not like our God. And the result of that, Paul phrases, the wages of our sin is death. The law condemns us to death. That's the lawful use of the law. How can the law be used lawfully? What is Paul talking about when he says the law is good when it's used lawfully? Well, it's good when it's aimed not at believers in the church trying to maintain their standing with God by doing the works of the law, but it is good when it is aimed at unbelievers and it is aimed at them with the goal of helping them to see how far short they fall of the glory of God. That is the lawful use of the law. He gives us in the bulk of our text this morning this whole list of sinners. You see that, right? A whole list of sinners. Different kinds of sinners. Unholy, profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers. Murderers, sexually immoral, homosexual, uh, people who practice homosexuality. Enslavers, another word for kidnappers. Liars, perjurers, and so forth. The law has a useful, a lawful use when it's aimed at people who are far from God. And that's the summary, really. We don't have time to go into why he uses that particular list of particular sins, but if you go back and look and compare it to Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments, you'll see a direct correlation between the second half of the Ten Commandments and these specific sins mentioned here. Honor your father and mother. Here he talks about a sin of doing what? Striking your parents. I think punching your parents is the opposite of honoring them. Isn't that true? I think I would consider that in my house to be the opposite. If Aiden walked up to me and just slugged me right in the nose... I would not consider that honoring his father. Right? Most parents, do you agree? Yeah. It's a violation of that commandment. Perjurers, a violation of the commandment not to bear false witness. So on and so forth. You can flesh that out on your own. So how is the law used lawfully? What Paul has in mind here is this. That the lawful use of the law, the good use of the law, is the law being used as a mirror. The law being used as a mirror. And we look at the law, and in it we see the holiness of God in vivid language for us. And in that mirror we see the sinfulness of ourselves, and we understand the gap between the two. That's what the law does for people. When an unbeliever is confronted with the law, when you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're just kind of bebopping through life doing your own thing, and you have no awareness that there's a God, you have no awareness that you're a sinner, you have no awareness that, you've, that you're a rebel who is destined for an eternal hell, you need somebody to come along and point to you to who God is and His holiness. And the law is useful for that. It is useful for pointing an unbeliever to the holiness, to the high standard of perfection that God sets in His very nature. And it is useful in pointing out to that sinner, Hey, that's where God is. Now let's take a look at where you are. You're down here. You don't even get in the same zip code of where he is. And because of that, you're eternally condemned. And if you don't, if something doesn't happen in your life, when you die, you'll stand in front of him. And there won't be any scales there. What will be there is a God who says, you're condemned to an eternal hell to pay for your sins. For your violations of my law. For your rebellion against me. That is the useful use of the law. 
It reflects the perfect righteousness of God, and it reflects the utter unrighteousness of people like us. And that's why there's so much detail in the law, because it, it, all that detail is there just to show us exactly how holy God is and to show us exactly how unholy we are. And I want to say to you this morning, we cannot jettison all of that like Andy Stanley and others would want us to believe. When you jettison all that, you excise from the gospel something that is critical. In order for a man to run to Jesus and to be saved, he has to understand that he is desperately lost and unsaved and condemned. And that's what the law does. It condemns us. It shows us how far short of his glory we fall. And how desperately we need a Savior to save us. Paul says this in Romans chapter 3. He says, For the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And he goes on to argue in chapter 7 of Romans, Hey, I wouldn't have even known what covetousness was unless the law said, Here's what coveting is. So he's saying that the law explains sin. And when it explains sin, then I understand that I'm condemned. I didn't know I was a coveter until I saw the law and it said what coveting is and how that violates God's standard. So the law does that for us. It explains sin. And it reveals our hopeless ability to keep it, our hopeless inability to keep it. And it drives us to Jesus. That's what the law does. The law lawfully used today drives men and it drives women to Jesus because it shows them how desperately lost they are and how hopelessly condemned they are and how they have absolutely no hope for today, tomorrow, next month, next year, or eternity apart from a Savior who would come and save them. When a person has looked long and hard into the law of God and understands who God is and who they are, they cry out like the crowd did at Pentecost, Pentecost when Peter preached to them and they cry out, what do we have to do to be saved? And the answer is you look to the cross of Jesus Christ where he did for you what you could never do for yourself. Where the one who was a living, vivid, visible, moving motion picture display of what perfect obedience to the law looks like. The one who showed you what the law is, is the same one who goes to the cross and sheds his blood And dies in your place. So that your sin is then nailed to his cross and paid for. And his perfect obedience is then credited to your account. That's what happens when a person runs to Jesus and is saved. And the whole purpose of the law is to show a man and a woman why they need Christ. If all we have is a law, we have no hope. If it's up to you and me to live a certain way or to go by a particular set of rules to be made right with God or to maintain a right standing before him, we're all hopelessly condemned. You might as well give it up. you got no hope. You can't do it. You can't do it. No, but we look to the law, and in it we realize we desperately need somebody to die for us. Or we're going to die for our own sins. That unless a Savior comes and dies and bleeds for our sin, we're doomed. We're doomed. 
And that's exactly what the Bible tells us Jesus Christ came to do. The Son of God laid down His life. He bled and He died in our place. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. In Isaiah 53, it says this, He has borne our griefs and He carried our sorrows. We esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by His wounds, we're healed. We, like sheep, have all gone astray. We've turned every one of us to His own way. But the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Everything that the law condemns you for, everything you've ever done that brings condemnation by the law, was laid on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he died for it. Because he knew you could never earn it. And as you and I gather around the Lord's table here at this time, we do so, and we should do so, with an abiding conception of the fact that every one of us stands condemned by the law of God. Every one of us stands condemned by the law of God. And our only hope is the Lord Jesus who died in our place. But the good news of the gospel or the glorious gospel that Paul that we might have eternal life. And admit, I'm condemned. And I have no, part, no hope apart from Jesus. The thesis of Christianity is simply what he did when he came in the person of Jesus, lived and died for your sin. And your only hope is to run to Jesus. To cling to him as your only hope. To submit your life to his rule. In full out confession that you have no hope on your own apart from him. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Somebody has told you Christianity is something other than that. They've told you Christianity is something like, you know, this. Just, you need a better life. Try Jesus. Things aren't going well for you. Come to Jesus. He'll make everything better for you. Come to Jesus and start doing church things and you'll be good to go. None of that's true. There's one motive to come to Jesus. And that's because you look at the law of God and understand you're a condemned sinner who has no hope apart from Him. And you run to him to help you with the worst problem that you have, your sin. If you haven't done that this morning, right now is a perfect time to do that as we prepare to go to the Lord's table. If you're a believer here this morning, I want to ask you if you would bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. As you prepare your heart for the gathering around the Lord's table. We reflect on the fact that we're condemned by the law, but saved by the blood of Jesus. And we celebrate the body and blood of Christ because in it he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And it's that very thing that we gather to remember as we take this ordinance together. So I'm going to lead us in prayer here as we prepare to take this ordinance. I'm going to ask you if you would just in your own way, in your own words before the Lord. Confess any known sin. Prepare to remember the body and blood of Christ in a way that honors him. 